Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining me now is one of America's distinguished diplomats, Ambassador Sandy Birchbaugh, who served as the U.S. ambassador to NATO, South Korea, and Russia, uh, as well as a stint at the Pentagon as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy before a four-year tour as NATO's Deputy Secretary General. He is now a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. Sandy, uh, great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman sponsors our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Sandy, uh, thanks again for uh, joining us uh, last week. Your colleague, Barry Pavel, uh, the director of the Scowcroft Center, was on the program, and he said that there's a risk that Russia's war against Ukraine is becoming a frozen conflict. Uh, and that when that happens, uh, it favors Vladimir Putin and, and Russia. What's your sense on where we are now and more importantly, where we're going? I think that the, uh, the war already uh, is showing signs of shifting in the Ukrainians' favor. And I think uh, I give the administration uh, a certain amount of credit for mobilizing allies and in it, together with its own efforts to help arm and train and equip the Ukrainian armed forces so that they were able, first of all, to win the battle for Kiev. And now I think they're already beginning to turn the tide in the battle for for Donbass. That being said, an actual victory by the Ukrainians is by no means assured. I think the Russians clearly are faltering and their whole uh, operation may grind to a halt, but that doesn't necessarily mean the Ukrainians are on the verge of, of victory. Uh, and it could indeed uh, end up after a few more months of, uh, of, of fighting uh, as a frozen conflict. What, what I worry about the most is uh, the Russians suffering more setbacks, clearly uh, unable to uh, achieve their objectives in the East, may uh, decide to declare a ceasefire in place to protect some of the winnings that they've, uh, that they've stolen thus far and put the Ukrainians in an awkward position. Uh, they may suddenly see uh, some U.S. allies pressing for uh, accepting a ceasefire for the sake of ending the killing, and who wants to see the killing go on? It's been so outrageous. Uh, but in some ways, a ceasefire in, in place would be a trap for the Ukrainians and make it uh, difficult to regain any further territory that the Russians have occupied since uh, February 24th. And uh, it could uh, just give the Russians time and space to regroup and rearm and uh, go after them again. So uh, it's going to be a test for U.S. leadership, because I think we're going to have to be firm with our own allies that it's the Ukrainians' decision on whether to persevere with this fight. And if they don't think a a ceasefire in place is is fair and in their interest, uh, and they choose to reject it, uh, then we have to give them continued support. That I think is going to be very controversial within the alliance. We're already seeing some allies talking about uh, ceasefires and getting back to the negotiating table, finding off ramps, the proverbial off ramps that uh, Putin never seems to take, but we can't continue to try to invent new ones. So we'll see. The, uh, the Ukrainians may, as they've done throughout this war so far, done even better than anyone expected. 
and the Russians may continue to be uh, perform in a mediocre way, and they the Ukrainians could achieve uh, what people would consider quite amazing is, is to recover most of the territories taken since February 24th, then they'd be in a position to, to negotiate a fair deal at the bargaining table. And there too, we would have to give them maximum support. As you said, and, and the concern uh, was that folks would start strong, expect the Ukrainians to fail, um, right? Germany made a very, very big promise of 100 uh, billion euros uh, defense fund, uh, 2% of GDP, but then a reluctance to actually help Ukraine uh, when uh, Ukraine uh, needed it, right? I mean, it's as though everybody was making pledges, expecting this to get over kind of quickly and we can go back to normal, which is exactly what Putin has, has wanted. So ultimately, what does a long-term strategy look like? Uh, because the, it, there is no indication the Russians are changing course. In fact, they've been making quite a lot of money off of their energy uh, sales um, and have created sort of a whole series of alternatives. And a lot of countries around the world are not making the choice we wanted them to make, which is to turn against Russia, right? Whether other great democracies like India, for example. Um, how, what's, what's the long-term strategy here? Or are we going to, as we have so often in the past, basically end up letting Putin off the hook and he, he knows it, in which case it's somewhat dishonest to put everybody through this, I would <laughs> think. Well, I think we've learned enough after our mistakes in letting Putin, Putin get away with it in 2008 in the war with Georgia, and even worse uh, in 2014 when he annexed Crimea. Uh, it was a slap on the wrist and we, uh, it wasn't quite business as usual, but we basically tacitly accepted what he, he did. We cannot do that this time around. I mean, the, the challenge to the whole international order is, is quite uh, profound. And if Putin even gets away with half of his, his winnings, uh, that only will encourage him to go back on the war path a few years from now against other neighbors. It'll send a message to Beijing that uh, uh, you know, if they try to use force to uh, control Taiwan, They'll only meet a limp response from the West. So there's a lot riding in this beyond Ukraine, and I uh, and I think the U.S. and and, and the Allies get it. You know, there may be occasional wobbliness on some specific issues, but uh, I've been impressed by uh, the the wide recognition of what really is at stake here. I think the long-term strategy has to be ultimately. It sounds ambitious, but it has to be ambitious. Is to restore. Ukraine as a sovereign country, an independent country with uh, internationally recognized borders and come up with uh, uh, the necessary carrots and sticks to uh, make, make it likely that Putin won't try this again. Uh, that means a long-term commitment to arming and equipping the Ukrainian armed forces, uh, both to prevail in this fight and to have a uh, in place deterrence forces so that the Russians are not tempted to invade again. Uh, other kinds of security guarantees uh, would be kind of hollow replicas of the Budapest Memorandum of 1994. I think the only hard security guarantee beyond arming and training the Ukrainians would be NATO membership. That may become uh, a live topic again. The Ukrainians certainly now have, have earned the right to, to have a hearing about NATO membership. But even without that, I think enabling them to defend and, and deter aggression is the best uh, guarantee of all. 
I, I, uh, I find it uh, fascinating how, um, I don't want to call them Russia's apologists, but folks who still continue to perpetrate uh, the myth that somehow NATO expansion is what drove Putin uh, to uh, to do this. And you were uh, at uh, NATO between 2012 and 2016 and lived firsthand uh, the 2014 uh, invasion. In fact, you and I, I think, uh, met in uh, Croatia uh, and, and actually discussed that soon after uh, it happened at one of the uh, NATO uh, defense industry forum, as I, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, how, Sandy, do we need to be thinking uh, over the long term? Because, you know, we, we talk about holding Russia to account, but Russia isn't being held in, uh, to account. It's assassinated in the United States and elsewhere around the world, pr- far more apparently than we were willing to admit uh, even to ourselves. Uh, the, the butcher of Aleppo uh, effectively is perpetrating the same uh, crimes against Ukrainian civilians, whether it's the targeting of nurseries, hospitals, maternity wards, uh, innocent civilians. Um, we heard a report in the last 24 hours that the priceless Ukrainian uh, seed bank was deliberately targeted and destroyed by Russians, uh, destroying um, you know, precious 400-year-old or hundreds of year-old seeds. Ultimately, what does it mean to bring a country like Russia to account? Uh, because we said that we would do that in the wake of World War II, um, and it's not abundantly clear that Russia is being held to any account. And indeed, there will be a lot of pressure to sort of look the other way. What, what does this look like, ultimately? Yeah, it's a tough question. I mean, we, mean, we mean, may never be able to fully hold Russia to account, but we have to do a hell of a lot better job than we've been doing with um, Putin's uh, various serial uh, aggressions against his neighbors. Uh, I think we could start by taking the position that no territory can, be, can remain under Russian occupation uh, if, if Putin ever ex- expects to see even the beginning of a lifting of the sanctions which I think we've done a very good job working with the Europeans to make quite uh, extreme. And I think we do need to work as uh, you kind of alluded to, getting countries that are still on the fence like India uh, to recognize that they have an interest in uh, ensuring Russia doesn't repeat this sort of behavior or make it uh, fair game for any any autocrat uh, that they may have to deal with. So using the sanctions leverage, and I think insisting that, uh, however we do this legally, I don't know, but making sure that the uh, frozen assets under the sanctions can be diverted to the reconstruction and uh, rehabilitation of Ukraine. Uh, uh, we have to pursue vigorously uh, war crimes, which are clearly rampant in the Russian campaign. Uh, they require setting up new institutions, but there too we should use uh, the sanctions leverage to the max uh, to get a credible war crimes process going. And I think ultimately we need to uh, think of ways without uh, advertising it of increasing the pressures for uh, regime change in Russia. Uh, that would be the best way to hold Mr. Putin account would be to see him removed in a more liberal Western oriented regime come back into power. We, we don't have the, the means to bring that about but I think we should think long-term about how can we begin to get our message through more clearly to, uh, to the Russian population, uh, work with these hundreds of thousands of, uh, of exiles who have fled the country to see whether we can help shape a better future for Russia. It's, you know, it's, it's not gonna go away. 
that the regime right now isn't going to change. But uh, in time, we might be able to create the internal dynamics or help create the internal dynamics that can bring about uh, uh, the kind of liberalization that we saw in the late 80s and, and into the 90s. And, and so you would argue um, that we are indeed now in um, a new Cold War and need to structure for a strategic long term. Uh, and indeed, I mean, I've suggested we might be in the start of the Third World War. It's just that this one looks different, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just as the second looked different from the first, that the third may look different from the second. Um, how would you characterize the period that we're in and the mindset we need to adopt? Because we have been very self-deterring over the past few decades. It's all been about preservation of trade, economic tranquility at home, continued growth. And each one of the actions that we're taking has a price. And indeed, our allies and partners are unwilling to bear some of those uh, prices, uh, costs that are being imposed. How, how do we need to think about where we are if we're going to plan the right way over a protracted period of time? And indeed, you have two great powers, right? China and Russia that are increasingly together in this endeavor. That's right. It's, uh, it is a different kind of Cold War. And I think it's, it's what we're going to have to deal with with respect to Russia is different from uh, the, the China challenge, which is in some ways more formidable just in terms of the uh, peer competitor that China represents in economic and technological terms, as well as uh, a, a rising military power. But a, but a power that is still has a stake in a in a kind of a rules based system. It, it wants to write the rules or rewrite the rules to to, to benefit China, but it ultimately, as a trading power, uh, has a stake in in a functioning uh, rules based system. Russia is much more nihilistic, and therefore a, a pure strategy of containment uh, is required. Uh, based on the premise that we're into a just beginning a long-term period of not just strategic competition, but confrontation, which will require uh, pretty uh, harsh measures on our part and uh, strong efforts to maintain unity of other like-minded countries who uh, either already understand what's at stake or need to, to be uh, convinced of what is at stake. Let me uh, go to the topic of Finland uh, and Sweden. Uh, fairly uh, astonishing uh, development uh, for anybody who's been watching these two countries. Uh, Sweden for 200 years has tried to avoid strategic alliance and Finland certainly over the last eight decades uh, or so, even though um, it is it is true that as EU members, uh, right, I point this out to our audience all the time where I think Carl Bildt, the former Swedish prime minister, is right. That effectively ended when these two nations became EU members. But still, when it comes to military alliances, they've tended to, to move very, very ginger, gingerly. What do these nations bring to the alliance, Sandy? And what would their roles be to improve security, whether it's in the high north, whether it's as, as a staging area? Although Sweden's asterisk uh, is, is somewhat troubling that it doesn't want any NATO forces based on its territory, something which I believe every other NATO nation is very, very happy to, to, to have. But talk to us about what these nations would be bringing to the alliance uh, that is the greater than the potential risk that they may incur with an 850-mile contact border with Russia, what have you. Now the, uh, the Swedish and Finnish uh, decision to seek NATO membership is one of the most remarkable developments. It's also one of the quickest sea changes we've seen in international politics in a long time. Uh, 
but I think these these uh, countries are both in some ways natural partners of NATO because they've been de facto uh, co collaborating with NATO for more than two decades. Uh, they were founding members of the Partnership for Peace. It was back into into the early 90s. They participated in NATO operations in Bosnia, uh, Kosovo, and, uh, and Afghanistan. They contribute troops to the NATO response force. Uh, they train and exercise with NATO on a continuing basis. And as uh, the Russian threat has uh, returned, particularly since 2014, without being integrated in NATO, they've been real contributors to our overall strategy for deterring and defending against Russia in uh, northern, northern Europe and the, the Baltic Sea region. Uh, so they often say that they have all the attributes of a NATO member except the Article 5 guarantee. Uh, well, it's clear why after what Russia has done in invading Ukraine and in you know, tearing up uh, the UN charter and every, every other agreement that they've, they've signed, uh, that both countries would reach the same conclusion that uh, neutrality no longer uh, is viable. Uh, and uh, staying outside of NATO, uh, as seen by you know, Ukraine being victimized by Russia, Russian aggression, uh, staying out of NATO is no longer going to serve their interests. And I think they bring a lot to the table. So this is not uh, just an act of charity on NATO's part to uh, bring them in. Uh, this will, I think, contribute real capabilities to NATO's cap uh, ability and NATO strategy to uh, maintain security in the Baltic Sea region. It uh, you know, fills gaps in, uh, uh, in coverage for air and uh, maritime forces. And uh, it brings countries that uh, you know, have, have invested significantly in, in their own defense and are not uh, gonna be kind of laggards uh, when, they, uh, when they join. So the issue of uh, not wanting basing of NATO forces on their territory is not necessarily the best formula that, that, I, that I would like to see as a, as a NATO veteran, but they do uh, put a lot of their own indigenous forces uh, into the NATO column in assessing the balance of power there. Uh, and particularly Finland with its uh, territorial defense strategy uh, isn't going to need a lot of help in defending that long border with Russia. Uh, but I hope that the, even though they may choose to uh, defend their own territory with their own forces, that they will uh, be good allies in offering to uh, deploy, at least on a rotational basis, forces to uh, the NATO uh, battalions in the Baltic states and Poland, or the new ones that are being set up in Southern Europe, uh, you know, they need to take on the attributes of a, of, a, of a NATO nation, which means being concerned about the, concern, the security uh, of all of the alliance and not just uh, the northern region. But I think they will do that uh, from what I've heard from uh, Finnish and uh, Swedish diplomats. They, they, they understand that NATO brings real responsibilities as well as, well as the security guarantee uh, as the number one benefit. 
Um, let me um, take you to uh, how Turkey uh, and Hungary can serve as spoilers. Obviously, two nations that are personally beholden uh, to Putin, uh, unfortunately, in some ways, and yet firmly part uh, not just of the North Atlantic uh, alliance uh, that both are, but Hungary is also an EU member. Um, ultimately, are they going to stand in the way of NATO accession? Um, and more broadly, how does the alliance deal with two nations that are in the tent that are actually somewhat actively working against the whole tent? Yeah, well, let me get to the larger question uh, in a second. Uh, I think that on the accession of Finland and Sweden, I don't think Hungary is likely to impose any, uh, any special conditions that would uh, block the path of these two countries to a fast track accession to the alliance. Uh, Turkey is, is the problem here. And uh, still not clear what's the price that they want to extract from uh, other allies and from the Finns and Swedes themselves. And I think they have a, a longstanding issue, which is a legitimate one. Uh, which the US has gotten into uh, hot water with uh, in, in our policy towards Syria over the years is relying on militias which are connected with the uh, PKK, which is judged to be a bona fide terrorist organization. Uh, and I think the Turks see an opportunity to uh, press the, uh, the, the Swedes and the Finns to uh, soften their support for any Kurdish groups that Turkey considers to be a threat to its security. How that'll be done, I have no idea, but I think it is a soluble problem. And I think the US is gonna to need to engage as kind of a go-between to help uh, find a formula that persuades Erdogan to, to climb down. Now, the broader question of, uh, of spoilers, often not with the program inside NATO, I mean, this is not a new, new phenomenon. Uh, we've had issues held hostage over Greek-Turkish disputes in the past. Uh, and, uh, Hungary has been a bit difficult in the last couple of years on uh, constraining Ukraine from holding uh, ministerial level meetings with, uh, with NATO because of Hungary's, I think, exaggerated concern about the uh, treatment of Hungarian minorities in, uh, in Western Ukraine. Uh, that doesn't seem to be an issue, as I said, relating to Finland and, and Sweden. Uh, but Turkey clearly has, Turkey presents other, uh, other challenges because of its uh, playing footsie with the Russians, uh, including on the S-400. Uh, some of those issues may be susceptible to, uh, to compromise, particularly if the US can find a way to approve uh, the transfer of F-16s, which could at least soften the blow of uh, Turkey's ejection from the F-35 program. But, uh, but as I said, I think some U.S. mediation may, may do the trick. I hope it will do the trick when it comes to the Finnish and uh, Swedish succession issue. In the beginning of this, the administration was talking uh, a lot about uh, why the United States and the international community had to stand up 
uh, for uh, Ukraine against Russia, making a case that if the rules-based order collapses and might makes right in this case, you're giving a green light to other such conflicts and, and even to Beijing vis-a-vis Taiwan, which is a central concern uh, of the United States and its allies and partners uh, in the Pacific. And indeed, the Chinese have been ramping their rhetoric, their exercises, and, and their pressure. Then the administration started to sort of back off, and China watchers are a little concerned that in order to convince Beijing not to help uh, Moscow, uh, that there are United States may be making some accommodations to be easing up a little bit uh, on the Chinese. What's the right way for us to do this so that the Chinese ultimately don't get the wrong message that actually we're more interested, you know, in, in terms of Ukraine and Russia than we are against Taiwan and giving them some form of accommodation or easing up pressure or, or moving away from uh, what we really need to do in a very important part of the world with a much more dangerous strategic competitor. So worried at this point, at least, uh, at least what information I have does, doesn't suggest the administration is sending a fundamentally different signal to the Chinese than they did earlier in this uh, crisis. Uh, and I think that the effectiveness of our military assistance to the Ukrainians, uh, which has exposed the, uh, the poor quality of, uh, of Russian weapons, many of which the Chinese import or, or uh, co-produce, uh, that itself may be giving the Chinese pause about uh, considering military options for the uh, uh, annexation or absorption of, of, uh, of Taiwan. Uh, but I think the key is we, we need to be consistent here. I think we made big mistakes in 2008 and 2014 in not uh, imposing a much heavier price on the Russians for changing borders by force, which is supposed to be the, you know, the ultimate uh, no-no in international relations uh, by, by imposing only uh, modest sanctions in 2014 uh, after almost no sanctions in 2008. But, but the modest sanctions in 2014 and the effort to continue dialogue with Russia on a lot of different subjects, I think did give Putin the impression that uh, uh, he could get away with it. And uh, that plus the perception of U.S. weakness after the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan may have contributed to Putin's readiness to, to take, take a, an action that incurred a much higher level of risk than he'd ever been accustomed to in the past. So we have to be consistent in imposing real costs on the Russians and sticking with it until, as I said earlier, uh, Russia gives back all the territory that it has stolen from Ukraine. Ultimately, that has to include Crimea. We can't treat that as a special case. That is the original sin, and it needs to be uh, uh, atoned for um, before any notion of normalization of relations with Russia can be considered. Um, let me ask you uh, about the nuclear uh, question briefly, because I want to also ask you uh, and wrap up on lessons learned. But I feel I have to ask you this question, because I know that you were at NATO. And when you started was when there was a, a lot more nuclear thinking and planning was being brought back into the alliance. I remember uh, talking to Jean-Paul Palomeros at the time, the Allied Commander of Transformation, who was focused on the issue and, and its importance in, in sort of restoring nuclear mindedness uh, to the uh, alliance. How concerned should we be? Because there's an awful lot of talk. You know, you 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 wisely mentioned Sandy off ramps, right? We're always interested in giving off ramps. We're afraid of cornering a guy, but ultimately, Putin is a little bit like the Terminator, right? You're either going to kill him, or he, you know, that that red light will come back into his eyes, and he's going to brain you at some point. 
uh, and and as Gary Kasparov rightly uh, says, right, hides behind his nuclear shield while trying to push you <laughs> push you off the off the cliff. Um, how do we need to regard his nuclear threats and nuclear posturing? Um, and and what sort of thinking, capability development, uh, exercising, messaging do we need to do, or or is it simply enough? Um, right, he's he's not stupid, nor is he suicidal, right? Yeah, I don't think Putin is suicidal. And I think that a lot of the saber rattling that we've seen during this crisis has been an effort to scare us, scare the allies into uh, limiting the kinds of weapons and technologies that we're providing to the Ukrainians, uh, in effect, to get us to deter ourselves for fear of uh, provoking a, a nuclear crisis with Russia. Uh, I think the administration, I think, has begun to recognize that Putin may be just as wary of a nuclear confrontation as, as we are, and we should be, uh, and that uh, you know, providing advanced conventional weapons, you know, be, being care, ca careful to calibrate the kinds of capabilities we, we give, but not uh, erring too much on the side of caution, uh, has, uh, has been working effectively. And we need to keep doing it. But you know, Putin could feel cornered. He could feel desperate. Uh, and he could, I, th I think the probability is very low, but it's possible that he would consider some kind of limited use of nuclear weapons to, uh, to, sh to sh shock the, the, the West, shock the Ukrainians, and, and try to recover uh, what he's lost in, in this failed campaign. Uh, again, I think that's very unlikely, but we need to be very clear, probably more in private than in public, in spelling out the kind of swift and decisive response that any such use of nuclear weapons would meet. Not necessarily response in kind. In fact, uh, if I were still in government, I would say you know the initial response should be a massive conventional strike that, that uh, takes out some some high value military bases or installations, uh, while making clear that. If Putin keeps it up, uh, we could respond in kind the second time around. So being clear in private what, what the price would be, disabusing Putin of any notion that he has some kind of edge uh, through his new technologies like hypersonic weapons, which I think he's kidding himself uh, with his fascination with the technology. Uh, but having a clear declaratory po policy uh, warning of the consequences, I think, is the best way to deter him from, from crossing the nuclear threshold. I'm actually more worried about him using chemical weapons, which uh, wouldn't break the nuclear taboo, but could be quite uh, horrific in their effects on, uh, on the Ukrainian population. Uh, so there too, we have to be very explicit that uh, any, any such use will call forth a very harsh response. And, and does that uh, what we did with the Syrian red line? Uh, well, uh, agreed. Um, I, so, I mean, in, in that case, briefly, I mean, is there, you know, you mentioned a conventional military response in the event of a Russian, for example, tactical demonstration or display. Do you think that there has to be a military response in the case that he does cross that line and use chem chemical weapons against? There are, there are some suggestions that there may have been chemical weapons used, but not confirmed yet. Is that causes belly from your standpoint? Well, you have to be able to confirm it before you uh, 
in, at least in most scenarios, before you use military force. But I think basically, yes, I mean, the logic of uh, deterrence when it comes to weapons of mass destruction is uh, that the uh, aggressor should not uh, have any confidence that he could insulate his country from, uh, from, a, from a harsh and prompt response. I think that's the best way to deter. Uh, you, keep, you may want to keep him guessing on what kind of response ambiguity can actually be useful in that respect, but not uh, create some kind of misplaced hope or expectation that uh, he could have evade uh, a harsh response. Um, what do you think are the key lessons? You know, you, you talked about the need to be tough. You're channeling your inner cold warrior, Sandy, right? You started in this business in 1974 uh, when you uh, graduated Yale. What, what are the most important lessons here from your standpoint, from this crisis that we have to be bearing in mind? Well, I mean, that's the subject for a whole conversation, but I think the, the, the basic lesson that I've learned over the years is that uh, weakness an overweening desire to compromise only emboldens uh, authoritarian uh, and aggressive dictators like Putin. And so you have to be firm and uh, in imposing costs for misbehavior. Uh, but also uh, you, you do have to provide an alternative path forward. It may be hard to construct one for Putin now after what he's done and the war crimes and the uh, you know, terrible destruction of the civilian population in Ukraine. Uh, but ultimately, we have to uh, find some way of uh, reestablishing some kind of modus vivendi with Russia while we, while we hope to uh, encourage a return to a more pro-Western liberal path, uh, presumably after Putin leaves power. Uh, right now, Putin is losing and we should let him lose. Uh, the idea that we should somehow construct an off-ramp right now while, while he's losing uh, defies our logic. Uh, it, this is one of the times to listen to Napoleon Bonaparte. When your adversary is making a mistake, don't correct them. Andy, thanks so much for uh, spending so much time with us. Absolute pleasure having you on the program. Look forward to having you back on uh, and giving you a little bit more time to answer that lessons learned uh, question. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks so much again. Okay, you're welcome. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.